side. Make sure this is on. I think we're good. I think we're good. That's encouraging. Love those families. Been watching them serve for years and years, uh, not only here, but elsewhere. Their lives have reflected uh, deep love for the things of God, for Jesus. Good morning. Way to go, worship team. Thank you, Tammy. Thank you, team. This is really amazing. We've met with the Lord already. We could go. I have a couple things. Uh, we're still looking at Mark, and I wanted to turn to a, a guy named Bartimaeus and find his testimony, his story in seven short verses in, in, the, in the book of Mark. Um, we assume he must have been uh, something to talk about in the early church because we know his name. Uh, you're 30 years into the early church by the time Mark puts this uh, gospel together. And he's thinking about the things, of course, that Jesus did that established him as king, which is what was going on, uh, but also those that uh, were affected by him directly and transformed uh, into disciples of his. And uh, for some reason, while Mark is writing, he thinks of Bartimaeus. Um, he was most probably a gospel-centered, Jesus-loving, compassionate man with a, with a very clear testimony. I, I suspect he may have even been part of setting the standards for what an elder is, those things that we just read. He would have been among those who were exhibiting the characteristics that God was looking for uh, in leadership from the, the very beginning. And if you were catching it, the qualifications to be an elder have almost nothing to do with performance, but with character. Character. And, and while we're standing here, um, I'm, I'm watching you know, Pastor Paul, who's, who's been our, our elder chair for 15 years. Like He launched into this uh, new church together uh, with others and took on that role and hasn't laid that mantle down for 15 years. He and Kelly have been <laughs> phenomenal uh, in their demonstration of character for me personally for 22 years that I've known them, for 15 years here. Um, uncharacteristic, really. Uh, uh, service, prayer, scriptural grounding, faith, discipleship. Um, I don't know where you guys ended up, but thank you for your unflinching support in my life and your Christ-like example. Paul's taken a well-deserved break <laughs> from the board. We, we might give him a year. <laughs> so, uh, just want to give, as, as you congratulate Andrew and uh, Eric, say thank you to Paul and Kelly for the leadership that they've provided. Uh, like all of these, Bart, and uh, if you don't mind me calling him Bart, Bartimaeus, uh, Paul, Kelly, uh, all the other influencers and shapers of the church, the family of God. They've found themselves in these roles since the very beginning, as I've said, because of who they are, their character. It's not about performance. It's about, you could say, identity. What, what comes from that, the, the, the activity or the performance, uh, if you will, the behavior, the obedience, is a, is a fruit of that inner 
transformation that's done by God, that, that character foundation, service and generosity and encouragement comes from who you are, who they are, not what you do. And that's true. Oddly enough, in, in our culture, where it seems like performance is everything, right? In, in our world, the strongest, the fastest, the smartest typically get all of the accolades, all of the rewards, and most of the money. But we inherently know that this life is really about identity. Because if you're, go if you're going to attack somebody, you don't say, well, you, you, have, you do a lousy job at your job. That's not, I mean, that hurts. But we say, you're a bad person. We know intuitively that's at the core of who somebody is. It's not what they do. You say, you want to you tear somebody down? You want to talk about what they do. You say they're a good-for-nothing, dirty, rotten scoundrel. That's what you do. You aim at that. If you want to encourage someone, the flip side of that coin, you can say, hey, you did a nice job. And people are like, oh, thanks. But if you say, you, you are amazing. You are incredible. You know from experience. Encouragement aimed at who you are is profoundly more significant than when it's aimed at what you do. How did Bartimaeus make it into the arguably the first gospel? Mark was probably first. How did he, where did his identity come from? How did this how did this begin? And we see it right here. Let me read let me read through these seven verses and then we'll talk uh, pretty briefly about it. So they came to Jericho, uh, Jesus and his disciples. Um, and there's a crowd there, and they're, and they're leaving the city. And the blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus. <laughs> which would be funny if you, like, Mark's writing to those not mostly non-Jews. But if a, non, if, a, if a Jewish person was reading this, it would read like this. They were leaving the city, a blind man, son of Bartimaeus, which means son of, or son of Timaeus, which means son of Timaeus. That's what it Bar Timaeus, get it? Son of Timothy. It'd just be like son of Timothy, which means son of Timothy. Anyway, he was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Right? In the middle of this crowd, a blind man somehow gets the notion, understands what's going on, has heard about Jesus, claims, exclaims, you are who you say you are. Have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, which wouldn't necessarily have been harsh. Like they were just like, yo, dude, you know, simmer down. You're making a big thing here. He doesn't, he doesn't wait. He says, son of David, have mercy on me. This guy knows he has one shot. One opportunity <laughs> to seize. No, so he has one shot. And so he's saying, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stops and he says, right, he stops, which he doesn't always. You, you realize we, we're, we're getting all the best moments of Jesus' life in the Gospels, right? But there were hundreds and thousands that are not mentioned and hundreds of thousands that were passed by. 
And Jesus stops and says, call him. So they call the blind man. They're like, hey, cheer up. On your feet. He's calling you. He says, cheer up. Hey, this is your lucky day, man. He, he's not, he stopped. Jesus stopped. The one you're calling stopped, and he wants to talk to you. He's calling you. He's throwing his cloak aside. He jumps to his feet, and he came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? So he calls the man. He comes, and he says, what do you want me to do for you? Which is always, I find, just a fascinating question of Jesus. He knows exactly what this man needs, what he wants. He's already told him. He says, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man says, Rabbi, I want to see. I want to see. Go, says Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately receive his sight and follow Jesus along the road. Okay, there are a lot of things that could capture our attention in this passage, short passage, and they do. Um, but the most significant is the suggestion here that Jesus didn't directly heal the man. Did you catch that? What did Jesus say? He says, what do you want? I want to see. And he says to him, what? Your faith has healed you. He doesn't put any mud on his eyes. He doesn't spit in his eyes. He doesn't tell him to go wash his eyes in a special pool. Nothing. He just says, your faith has healed you. Now go. Now go. <laughs> your faith has healed you. It's, it's as though Jesus saw something in the man, recognized something, and said, yes, that, right there, that has healed you. What was it? What was it? What, what was it about this? What can we see in these few short verses that capture Jesus' attention and says, yes, that exhibition there, sir, has healed you. Now go. Was it his declaration? It says, son of David. Well, yeah. To some degree, that, that's got to be a part of it. P part of our identity, of an identity in Christ, is recognizing him for who he is. When you see Jesus, you're going to acknowledge who he is or you're not. Whether you were in the, in the first experience with Jesus or in them today. Jesus is made clear throughout the world at this point, and every single person is going to decide, like the worship team was saying earlier, going to bow or not bow in this lifetime. Certainly, a declaration of who Jesus is, the rescuer of humanity, the rescuer of uh, all people, those that would come to him become his family. He is the king of the kingdom. And we certainly recognize that, certainly part of it. Was it that he came when he was called, right? Jesus calls him and he comes. Yeah, that's got to be part of it. That's, that's, that's notable. Jesus called him and he came. There, there is a, there's a degree of our responsiveness that is a good thing as we find our identity in Christ. That when he speaks, we listen and we move, and we respond. We've talked about this exhaustively. Even back into the Old Testament, the, the Shema, right? Listen, O Israel. The, 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 the Bible is filled with the essence of this narrative that God speaks. His people not only listen, but fulfill the listening by doing. And we see him doing that, and that would certainly be notable. This, this guy's on a good path. 
recognizes, names him. He's called, he comes. What, what about his awareness? This, this guy is aware and humbly enough to admit he needs mercy. He's not prideful. He's not saying, I don't need this. I don't need all these people, weak people. I, I'm, I'm blind, but I'm not, you know, I'm no less than. I don't need any charity. I don't need any mercy. He recognized. He did. He had needs. That, that is certainly something to look at. How about the ask? Is the ask important? Does the ask catch Jesus' attention? What do you want? Yeah. It takes a lot of humility just to ask. It's risky. It's courageous. We all, we all know plenty of stories in our own life and other lives when we've asked God for something and it hasn't come. And might never. In this lifetime, anyway. To ask demonstrates something. It does demonstrate faith. All of these things demonstrate faith to some degree. I would argue that we haven't yet covered the thing at the center of the whole deal. And it's right at the center of the few verses. Probably on purpose. Look at chapter 10, verse 50, and let this sink in. Throwing his, is that up there? Or am I just going to have to read it for you? Do you see it? Mark 10, 50, can you guys put it up? Anyway. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. I think this is the most significant thing that the man did throwing his cloak aside. Let me tell you why I think that. First of all, his cloak verified for those that walked by him every day that he was a legitimate beggar. Beggars wore a particular cloak, so when people came by, they didn't have to question whether this person was actually poor and in need. They identified them as such with a cloak. His very existence, his ability to survive, depended on that cloak. I think we could safely assume that it kept him warm. We can probably assume it was the sum total of his possessions. When this guy threw his cloak aside, he demonstrated a willingness, if not a commitment, to set aside his means his protection, his comfort. This blind man is arguably casting everything that he has aside. And you could draw the conclusion that with it goes his identity. Who he is is all about that cloak. And without batting an eyelash, he throws it aside. That willingness is arguably the greatest exercise of faith among all the things that exhibited faith in his life. He made himself vulnerable. He left what he knew. He left what was certain and moved toward the man that he believed by faith would give him a new identity and change his life. 
a little bit about identity, and then I'll just wrap this up here. <coughs> I don't I don't mean to be uh, I don't mean to exaggerate here, but I'm going to come close. Almost everything that's unhealthy in today's modern culture, the Western world, as it were, that we live in, is rooted in futile attempts for people to find a meaningful identity. Look around you. Look at almost anybody you meet. Look at what's being advertised. Look how things are being advertised. Look at who's uh, within the inner circles of power and possession and popularity, and you will find a grappling for identity. In fact, no one's even ashamed of it anymore. Have you heard this phrase? I identify as. That's what people say. I identify as this. This is my, I, let me show you, this is who I am. It is ingrained within our natural humanity to be searching for who we are. To be grappling for some identity, some meaning, some depth of personhood that is inherently valuable. But we keep grabbing for what the things that do not provide that. Not in any lasting, deep way. It, it can provide it to some degree. I, you can certainly find your identity in, let me say, earthbound things. But identities that are linked to things like popularity and possessions and power are bound in time. They, they, they do not last and they are given to you, believe it or not, if you look closely, by other people. You must get it from somebody else. And there is some identity that's there but you know what comes along with identities <laughs> of those sorts a lot of anxiety a boatload of anxiety what do i mean well we we're anxious if we don't have enough money we're anxious if we are uh, uh downcast and, and cast out and don't have power we are anxious if we if we don't belong somewhere but if you find your way to belonging or great possessions or great popularity or great power, the anxiety increases by tenfold because why? Now you've got to hang on to it. And, and if your identity, if those sorts of things are what give you your identity, it is becoming and has become who you are. So you are literally hanging on to those things for your dear life. Are you with me? Those things I mentioned are somewhat external. Popularity, possessions, power. There are a lot of internal ones too. Our intellect can be our identity. There are plenty of us have, have, have that, right? Descartes himself says, I think, therefore I am. He basically said, because I think, that's where my identity is. It should be no surprise how people are grappling with issues related to gender. Gender is arguably, from a natural point of view, one of the deepest issues of identity that we, ha that we, can, get, we can have. Of course, there's a, a lot of conversation about that. Politics, 
arguably has become almost completely identity-type politics. Identity politics approach where people of particular race, religion, gender, social background, uh, class, and, and, and environmental, whatever, uh, identifying factor, and then they develop their political agenda out of those identities. We see that all over the place. And now pain. Pain. Pain is an identifying factor. It's seeing it more and more in social media, mostly among young women, uh, American and Brits particularly, they have their pain, in many cases their disorder, on display. And the message is, not only this is who I am, but you should make it who you are. Which is a very dangerous and terrible direction to go with the pain of life. Typically the people that are making these conversations are on sort of the spectrum end of pain where it's manageable. But most pains and disorders and problems in this life have a, a whole spectrum of people that are suffering deeply from it. And to have the message be, it's who you are, you should hang on to it and don't get better, is horribly damaging. There is nothing that seems to be out of bounds of where we can find our identity. And it's understandable. In a global environment where we're aware of everything and everybody and everyone in the world, how do you distinguish yourself? You can fill in the about box on your uh, social media account. You have a few lines where you can say who you are. You put all those together and there's like 12 or 14 different types of people. That's about it. But if you can find something odd or different or strange or unusual or unique about it, you're going to put that front and center. People want to have an identity, and not just any identity, one that is unique. We are st steeped in a culture that's screaming, find yourself, identify yourself. We all find it somewhere, too often in unhealthy ways. And at any given time, we all have an identity of some sort. My, my wife's going to talk about this more uh, uh, in a couple weeks uh, uh, from her experience of 30 years of working through the toughest things of life with hundreds of people, if not thousands. Uh, what does it mean and how do we embrace and, and get into this understanding of who God's made us? We all have an identity. It, the, the, the teaching here is that don't have an identity. The God-centered life is an identity. The Christian life is an identity. You can look through the Bible and barely, barely turn a page without finding a narrative or a metaphor related to identity. But this identity, the Christian identity, the God-centered identity, isn't earthbound. It's eternal in nature. It's not others-given. Identity in Christ is God-centered, God-given, unconditional, disconnected entirely from performance. There's no other place to get an identity like that than from your creator. And it's your true identity, the real identity, connected to all the truth of God's creation and the, uh, the eternal life that is real. Paul talks about it incessantly, quite honestly, through all of his letters. Just a couple examples. Don't you know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? <laughs> You're not your own. You were bought with a price. Honor God. That's the letter to the 
the church in Corinth. Here's the one to the church in Galatia. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God. That's, that's an identity through faith. This is part of the reason I feel strongly about why Jesus said your faith has made you whole. We see the children of God is a place, an identity that is found through faith. This guy was willing to throw his identity away, come to Jesus for a new identity, and that exhibits faith in Jesus' eyes. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. You're wearing Jesus' clothes. People should look at you and say, are you Jesus? That's true. I've been crucified with Christ, Paul says, and I know I no longer live. Christ lives in me. My identity is no longer me, per se, but it's Jesus in me. At the, at the identity is at the core of faith in God. Identity is at the core of the lordship of Jesus in our life. We don't come to Jesus to be a better me. We set ourselves aside to come to Jesus by faith and have Him re-identify us. All other identity constructs have self at the center where identity is earned, fought for, forced upon us, and then an an anxiety-laden, gripping life of hanging on to it. Identity in Christ is the only true identity because it comes from your creator directly. You can go clear back to Genesis 1 and read about how God identified us as His from the beginning and made in His image. So, back to uh, uh, the big picture. Le photo grande in the spirit of international words. Uh, <clears throat> that's probably not even real Spanish, is it? <laughs> Le photo grande. You just put a lay in front of it and say grande in there somewhere and you're good. It, um, Here's the big picture. Bartimaeus starts in verse 46, 7, identified as a blind beggar, and in the middle makes a turn, and by the end, he is identified as a seeing disciple of Christ. An identity now as a Jesus follower. He tells him, go. Then tell him where to go. But he very naturally from that point says, well, I'm going with you. He didn't go, truly, from being a blind guy to a seeing guy. Not, a, not the core of this thing. He certainly did. He, he went from being uh, a blind guy to a Jesus-following guy. From beggar to belonging to Jesus. And apparently, as I've suggested earlier, a, an example of an abundant life. When Mark and Peter are, are penning these words, they go, Bartimaeus. What Jesus sees in Bartimaeus is faith. He sees faith. It's demonstrated, as we've said, in, in a number of different ways, but the most profound is to set aside all of what is to be him to be replaced and identified by all that is Jesus. And that's where God is calling you and me. If you're struggling with your relationship with God, you don't feel like he's quite distant. There's probably a number of reasons for that. We all have a lot of reasons that we struggle. But maybe one of the most significant things is keeping you from enjoying fellowship with God. 
and, and a hearing his voice and a sense of his presence in your life, a profoundly good human journey could be and most likely is the attachments and the identities that you have secured in this lifetime that you're unwilling to fully set aside. It's a great little story. A father who gives his five-year-old daughter a set of fake pearls for her birthday. She loves them. She has no idea that they're fake. She loves them. They stay with her through her whole life as a, as a, as a reminder of the love of her father and who knows what else. Even in high school, she would wear them. In college, as a young adult, she would wear them on a date if for no other reason to talk about the love of her father, but also to test somebody to see if they have a problem with fake pearls, if they love her. You know what I'm saying? It's like there's a lot of things that could happen with that. And then the day come. She's getting married. And her father's about ready to walk her down the aisle. And he says, before I walk you down that aisle, I need those pearls back. She was wearing them on her wedding day. I need those pearls back. She had totally forgotten that when he gave them to her, he said he was going to take them back one day. And she's heartbroken. She's like, Daddy, these have been with me since I was five. I want to walk down the aisle with the pearls that you gave me around my neck. And he says, I'm not walking you down the aisle unless you give me those pearls back. She (laughs) doesn't understand at all. But she loves her father, respects him, takes the pearls off, and she hands them. Before she even realizes she's taking them, he's handing her another box with a set of real pearls. We must be willing to give up the identities of this life. The identities in many cases that you've worked so hard for, that you've loved so much. Even things that God has granted to you as blessings, we must let go of if they've become our identity and give it up for the, 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 this world, for the real identity that is ours to be had as a gift of God to us that are far more valuable than the one we're giving up. Are we singing more, Tam, or are we just done after me? Huh? You are going to sing more? Awesome. Come on up. I love it when you sing. <clears throat> I'll finish with this. The exercise of faith, the exercise of your faith is an identity thing. And it's the entry point of your eternal healing. Like you might not get healed like he got healed of sight. But when you give up your identity and turn to Jesus, you do get to experience the eternal healing, the eternal forgiveness, the eternal and unassailable reconciliation with God. And you begin to see things clearly for the first time. When we set aside our cloak and come to Jesus, we are healed. Maybe not of everything that we want to be healed from. And we do get to see something that we've never been able to see before. And your new identity is a rock-solid unconditional, everlasting identity in Christ that will ground you in this world 
It will ground you in your life and it will propel you into the life of human flourishing that God has intended for you. There is no other way to find that life. And it will stay with you throughout this life and into the next where we will enjoy him finally in full. God, would you compel us by your spirit? Would you, would you actually create a, a, a sense of, of dissatisfaction and even disgust in the things that we are gripped onto that are not of you. God, would you, would you make it awkward, unsatisfying? Allow us the privilege, God, to see you for who you are, call you King and Savior and Lord, respond to your call, come to you with empty hands and nothing and say, I am willing to set it all aside to have what you have for me. God, would you do that in us individually and as a church? Allow us to be who you want us to be and need us to be for your glory and the good of the world around us. God, would you do that in Jesus' name? Amen. There's your microphone. Be upon you a thousand generations, and your family, and your children, and your children, and their children. Would it favor be upon you and a thousand?